This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the Edition Podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. This week, why are a growing number of people putting the planet before parenthood? Plus, has Boris Johnson brought conservatism full circle? And finally, what is the state of the Booker Prize shortlist? First up, our cover story this week looks at the people deciding not to have kids because of climate change concerns. Madeleine Kearns writes about this phenomenon and thinks that some of these fears might be unfounded. Tom Woodman, author of the graphic novel Future, is one of these people that Madeleine's piece talks about. They both join me now. Maddie, you write our cover article this week about the growing trend amongst millennials to factor in climate change when deciding whether to become parents. And a recent poll by The Lancet showed that 39% of people feel hesitant about having children due to climate change. Were you surprised that that was such a concern for some people? I, I think so, yeah. I mean, the reasons often cited are that having a child contributes to the problem of climate change. And then there's a very different argument that it wouldn't be fair on a child to bring them into the world when it's in such an awful mess. To be honest with you, I don't find either of those arguments particularly persuasive, especially when you look at the broad sweep of history and everything that our ancestors have gone through before. But it's certainly an interesting phenomenon and I think speaks strongly to how panicked and paralysed many of my generation feel on this question. Tom, you, you're you one of these people and you, and you also write in this week's magazine about why you're not having children because of climate change reasons. What are your biggest concerns about bringing, bringing a child into the world? Uh, well, I would first of all say that I am not necessarily not having children. It's more that this is a big consideration for me. Being able to consider your children's future, I think, is an important question. Obviously, you try and set everything up so they'll have a nice life. And with this as sort of a a looming presence, uh, it is something I consider a lot. So in terms of what might put me off in relation to climate change, it's the feeling that um, whatever their lives might be, uh, it would be overshadowed and perhaps limited and perhaps even taken by the effects of climate change. I I do realise that sounds extremely dramatic, but I'm not just talking about sort of disaster movie kind of thing. I'm talking about a range of different effects. So if we're we're looking at things like perhaps pollution, uh, we can look at potential food shortages that are forecast in lots of predictions. We can also look at things like uh, illnesses perhaps strengthened by climate change there are so many knock-on effects one thing leading to another leading to another that it's also quite hard to uh, basically track all the different things that we're being told to be scared of and although you don't want to I would never advocate panicking over this because that's not useful at all the threat does seem so multifaceted that it's hard to consider a way we could address all of it. 
Maddie, some of these climate predictions seem like something almost out of the book of revelations, but but people like Tom are arguing not that the world is going to end because Satan is rising, but more because of all the scientific research that seems to be coming out right now. Do you think it's it's, it's understandable to have a fear of a kind of catastrophic climate crisis? It, it's understandable given the way that this uh, issue is covered in, in schools and in the media, but I would say my read on, on the science is when you actually look at, for example, the IPCC report in comparison to the sort of rhetoric of uh, alarmist activists, you do find quite a stark difference. I mean, of course, the these are really serious uh, concerns but applying a bit of critical thinking you realize that it affects obviously different parts of the world differently and different populations differently so while if I were a sustenance farmer in the third world I would be really seriously concerned about my own existence I think living here in the first world we have many reasons to be hopeful many reasons to be grateful it occurs to me that in a lot of the ancient wisdoms and also in something like cognitive behavioural therapy, one of the things you're told not to do is to live in a state of anticipation of the future, a future that may or may not happen. And I think this feeling does come from that projected fear and that it would be much better to sort of live in the present to realise that my day-to-day life is actually not all that affected by this. Perhaps my children's lives will be at some point in some way. But that is true of so many different things. I mean, there are so many unpleasant potentialities in the world, diseases you might get, things that might go wrong in your personal life. Tom mentions death. I'm afraid to break it to you, Tom, that's coming for us all. So I, you know, (laughs) I I think just a a sense of perspective is is helpful here. Tom, does that encourage you to to be to consider having children? I've immediately changed my mind entirely. Um, No, although I do find that very encouraging. And as I hope is clear, I would like to be entirely in agreement with you on all of these points. Um, As I say, I don't think unwarranted panic is useful in any way. But I do think that looking at the evidence I'm seeing, uh, when you say these things may or may not happen, Uh, The evidence I see, at least, and I may well have a more limited view than I should have, or more limited sources in front of me, but all of the sources I see say this will happen to some degree. It is happening already. We can see many effects as we go. And also when talking about different areas of the world and how they're affected, again, 100% agree. I think all of the predictions suggest we in the UK are especially lucky in several ways. But... We can also look at things like uh, the predictions before COVID ran rampant were that we were, again, one of the best place countries and so shouldn't worry too much, but should be sensible. And then we have seen that it has not been as easy as we'd hoped. Again, we haven't had the worst situation compared to so many other people, but it has not gone as easily as we planned. And if we are looking at... um, sort of knock-on effects and if we're looking at effects that only grow over time and my worry is that this will be a completely global problem so that there is nowhere on the planet that is untouched by it it doesn't necessarily I mean it doesn't matter uh, that we are safer but it would again be a question of time. Maddie there are lots of reasons aren't there why people of our generation might not want to have kids whether it's cost of housing or job insecurity or just the kind of 
changing dating scene which has perhaps made it harder to to meet someone do you think some of the environmental arguments are perhaps being used to kind of cover up some of the other perhaps more mundane reasons why people might be a bit nervous about having kids yeah it's always good to have a moral principle for doing something or not doing something and there's nothing more altruistic than caring about the planet so i think that probably does explain why people are are feeling passionate about this but of course Fertility was was moving in a downward trend anyway. Uh, we're at record levels of uh, low fertility in the US, and uh, same same trajectory in the UK and across parts of Europe. So I think that is probably part of it. This is just one piece of the of the jigsaw. Tom, what about you? Do you think those other factors play into it? Uh, absolutely, yes. I mean, I can only truly speak for myself, but I would say there are lots of different factors affecting my thoughts on this. I would say if it wasn't for this, I would be <laughs> teetering on the positive side, if that makes sense. And as it is, I'm more teetering slightly on the negative side. Uh, you can't ignore all of the thousands of other uh, positives and negatives that affect everyone's choices in this area. I do think that it is a legitimate concern, but I don't think you can ever take one thing in isolation. And also, I do know so many people who, for example, have said, oh, I will, I'll never get a mortgage, I'll never get married. They get slightly older, they get a mortgage, they get married. I do still think that there's a very strong chance that I will have children. But as I say, this is a, a big impact on it. I do know other people who say they won't have children for financial reasons. I know some people who say they won't for climate reasons or various other personal reasons. But it's difficult to disentangle entirely. And just finally, Tom, you, you've recently written a sci-fi graphic novel called Future about a world where humanity is on the brink of extinction due to climate change. But in that story, it's new technology and human ingenuity that actually saves the planet. So do, do you worry that, you know, by not having or by choosing not to have children, you might be stopping the heroes of your book from even being born and saving the planet? Um, that is, I'm, I think you're being very kind to my gene pool there. Thank you. Um, I think that what we actually need from my point of view here is to not just be considering my own children, but both to address this small part of the problem and climate change as a whole, we do have to have more of a community approach because at the moment, a large set of contributors towards all of this is simply that people are looking after their own needs, which is entirely understandable, which means everyone is sort of going, well, I need to do this for profit, even though it's not good in a, from a green point of view. And so in the same way, when it comes to having children, we don't necessarily need to be thinking, okay, my children need to do X, Y, and Z, but also have in mind the future of the planet. And I'm in no way advocating for people not to have children, but I, I think actually, uh, Maddie, you mentioned in your article, uh, was it that Harry and Meghan are limiting themselves to two children? So, for example, in that way, instead of having the violent population crash that we're looking at at the moment, which would be disastrous in its own way, you might have a more controlled, slight reduction of population and be able to actually care for all of the people we have and to basically have some kind of societal approach to the problems we face instead of just worrying, what will my children do? What could my children do above everything else? Maddie, just, just to you at the end, Tom ends his piece saying that he hopes he's wrong about all this. 
What what would you say to try and convince him that he he is wrong? I think you're overthinking it. Honestly, I think honestly you're you're married. Just if you want kids, just have them. I I think our ancestors just would not have understood this this line of thinking. Half of no, a third of Europe was wiped out, out in the 1300s bubonic plague. 40 million civilians died in the Second World War. Death is is inevitable it, it, it can take many forms suffering is inevitable it can take many forms but along the way you can find hope and friendship and love and I always think of it's a wonderful life you know George Bailey his life touched so many other lives uh, you might have the who knows give your gene pool more credit you could have the next scientific genius who gets us out of this mess I just think that the quality of life that we enjoy today in the 21st century in, in the first world is better than anyone at any point in history could have hoped for. And we're wasting it by worrying about, about things that, that don't really directly affect us. That's not a reason not to care, but it's a reason to be grateful. Thank you, Madeline and Tom. Next up, are the Conservatives turning away from Thatcherism and rediscovering the roots of the Conservative movement? That's the argument Tim Stanley makes in this week's Spectator. He joins me now along with one of the MPs mentioned in his piece, Steve Baker. Tim, in your piece for the magazine this week, you argue that Boris Johnson may well have brought the Conservative movement full circle. Can you start by outlining your argument? My argument is that some people are angry that it seems as if Boris Johnson has led conservatism away from what has long been regarded as an orthodoxy, particularly on tax and spend. What I'm arguing is that that so-called orthodoxy really only dates back to the late 70s and early 80s. It's a Thatcher thing. It was an orthodoxy that was relevant then, and, and I do believe was very conservative and picked up on very conservative themes. But it served its time. It was of a particular era. We've now moved on. And the problems of today, particularly the post-Brexit problems, actually compel conservatives to return to much older themes that predate Margaret Thatcher, the themes from which conservatism really arose. Their themes around borders and identity and the protection of tradition. So I'd say that although Boris Johnson looks right now as though he's breaking from conservative orthodoxy, I think he's actually going back to some much older conservative themes. Steve, you were actually mentioned early on in Tim's piece. What do you make of Tim's argument that Boris is actually taking conservatism back to its roots? Well, Tim's got a very good point, of course. I mean, his argument is uh, impeccable, I suppose. Where I disagree with him is that I do think many of these arguments rest on a a false idea of what classical liberals like me believe. So I think classical liberals like me can legitimately be respecters of traditional institutions, you know, the institutions that we have, particularly when they grow up through a free society. And we shouldn't be the sort of people who cast aside institutions uh, wantonly. But the other point is, and where I think uh, looking down the road things will change, I think we're going to run out of other people's money and we're going to do it for two reasons. First, inflation is going to burst the bond market bubble, bring QE to an end and cause interest rates to rise. And the other reason is the long term spending promises which have been made. The debt level is only heading in one direction. And I think those two things taken together in the short and the long run will mean we're going to have to rediscover a classical liberal conservatism in order to preserve the very things that we treasure. Tim, you make the point in your piece that conservatism is not ideology, but instinct. What exactly do you mean by that? Uh, Conservatism is essentially about reaction. It's reaction to events. 
Uh, and it's a desire to protect the good stuff while change happens. It's not, it's not, a, not entirely opposed to progress by any means, because that itself would be quite unconservative, because progress and change are a part of life. I mean, we grow taller, we get smarter. This is progress. But it's about when there is dramatic change, trying to soften that change, mitigate the worst effects or make it work for people. And therefore, I, I reject an ideological approach that says that when A happens, conservatives must do B. I don't think that's quite correct. It's more that they pull upon a sort of his, a pool of historical wisdom and they try to seek to preserve that which is best about the past. I mean, I mean by the way, Steve, Steve Baker makes some very good points there, one of which is that there are certain facts of life that go beyond ideology or politics. And one is that if you tax and spend too much, you destroy the free economy and you take too much money, and et cetera, et cetera. So there are certain facts of life which go beyond themselves, go beyond ideology and which classical liberals are quite correct about. And the other point he makes, which is very important, on this I will acknowledge that my essay was deliberately shorthand and provocative. Uh, one mustn't think that classical liberals are opponents of tradition. Hayek is actually a big fan of tradition. And part of his argument is a very conservative one, which is that tradition evolves, it emerges, and the social knowledge that we have today has been accumulated through history as a sort of organic process. And any attempt to overnight overturn that and replace it with something entirely novel is wrong, which I, I entirely agree with. I just think that sometimes capitalism totally unfettered ends up doing that just as dramatically as socialism can. I don't know when we ever had capitalism totally unfettered, though. I mean, you know, even going back to the 19th century, I'm sure it wasn't totally unfettered. And I'm not sure anybody's proposing that it should be totally unfettered. But I, I suppose if I were to boil down my main concern, it is that as an engineer, I care about ideas. So if you're an aerospace engineer and you're putting aircraft in the air, it's really important that all the engineers involved have a really clear idea of how aircraft fly. Make a similar argument about software, which I've also engineered. And, and in politics, I think that if we don't have some kind of ideological keel when we're at, at sea in a storm, we get knocked to and fro. And I suppose that's my essential concern. It feels sometimes that expediency is the watchword. And I don't think expediency is going to get us through some of the obstacles which will lie ahead. Tim, what, what kind of conservative do you think Boris Johnson is? You say he, he isn't really a one nation Tory. You say he used to parade himself as a Thatcherite but he also allows chaos to happen. Is chaos very conservative? Well, just to pick up on that point about expediency, that's the question, isn't it? Is Boris Johnson doing what I've said I hope he does because he intends to do it? Or is he doing it because he's trying to keep up with events? I think Brexit's unleashed something. The coronavirus has definitely unleashed something and lockdown's made it even worse that requires governments to react and cook up policies. The reality is, is that up until very recently, Boris Johnson was a classical liberal. Uh, he, he's a free trader, small state, low tax kind of guy. He got, a, he got elected conservative leader promising lower taxes for middle class people. He has changed his politics in line with events. And I, I think that is motivated probably more by expediency than by philosophy. Part of the problem with that is you can end up cooking, the, cooking up the wrong policy. So if, for example, I would say that it is philosophically sound to say that we should provide for social care for older people. And it is necessary that some of that should come from the state and through tax and spend. That to me seems like a perfectly coherently conservative position. I'm sure almost no one would disagree with it. But Boris Johnson, in endorsing that, has reached for a mechanism, national insurance contributions, which is the wrong mechanism. I think partly because he's not approaching these questions from that sound philosophical basis. 
he's just reacting to events and saying, oh, I need some cash. Where can I get it from? Let's use national insurance contributions because the entire country pays them. So Scotland will have to pay them as well. So there's a series there of cold political calculations taking place rather than a proper engagement with the ideas or with the philosophy behind it. So I think conservatism is going backwards, but I think it's a matter of expediency under this particular prime minister rather than philosophical conviction. I'm afraid that's probably right. And I don't like it one bit, but it is almost certainly right. Yeah. Steve, just finally, Tim says in his piece that the Tories are returning to these themes from the 19th century, better paying conditions, improved education and localism. Do you think that shift is going to help the Conservatives hold on to their red wall gains? And I mean, could it jeopardise their votes in the South? Well, no, I think it is going to be helpful to all of us. But I think all of us in the Conservative Party believe in the little platoons. We believe in localism. We believe in community. But healthy community is voluntary. You know, that when you, when you bound how people act by directing what they do, then you reduce what happens to the capacity of the mind doing the direction. And that, that's one of the fundamental problems with a, with a directed society. So I think, we'll, I think we can get through as we are but just right up to the point the money runs out. And if we keep reaching for higher taxes every time age-related spending goes up, then we're going to be doing nothing else until we truly run this thing into the ground. Tim and Steve, thank you very much. And finally, the Booker Prize shortlist has been released, and it's fair to say that one of our critics, Philip Hencher, is not too impressed with the choices. But how are these books selected? Are the Booker judges biased? And can a Booker Prize winner ever be funny? To answer all these questions, Philip joins me now along with our books editor and former Booker judge, Sam Leith. Philip, in this week's Spectator, you give a brief overview of the shortlist for the Booker Prize. What was your general assessment of the quality of the books? I actually think that there is something called the quality of books, which is quite separate to what they're actually saying or the kind of political position that they take. And for me, this year, well, you know, I think I want to get away from that subjective position for me. The quality of these books is not necessarily very high. They seem to be much more um, the subject of a claim based on the fact that well-thinking people are going to agree with whatever proposition they put forward. I would really like to see a Booker Prize that just focused on straight down the line literary quality and that for me it came and went this year some of the books were perfectly okay I wouldn't say that any of them were sensationally good a couple of them fell into the category of honestly not very competent in basic novelistic stuff there's one that you say Richard Powers the overstory is almost unreadable tell us tell us about that I found it almost unreadable this is a novelist who you know, if he was in my MA class in creative writing, my red pen would would come out. He really, really cannot write dialogue. He can't listen to what people say, which is a really vital part of novelistic practice. He can't see what people do um, when they're in a room. You know, all his descriptions of the way people move, it's straight out of the standard uh, rule book of he shrugged. You know, that's a really important thing that the novelist has to be able to do. I think the the engagement with character is really poor. You know, we don't uh, we don't really know anything about any of the people in this book. They just talk to each other about major issues, and there's no doubt at all what you're supposed to take away from this book. But we don't care. 
you know, a major character is killed at the end of this book. I didn't care because I didn't really believe in this character at all for a moment. Sam, what did you make of this year's shortlist? Well, I, I haven't, unlike Philip, read this year's shortlist in its entirety. It happens I read The Powers, and I didn't think this was good at all. I thought it was rankly sentimental, and I think most of the complaints Philip makes about it are absolutely spot on. You know, I had the same complaints myself when I reviewed them. They're probably less forthrightly expressed than Philip's. But, I mean, Powers actually, I think, is and has been an interesting novelist. And I remember years ago reviewing his book Ploughing the Dark, which is, you know, this sort of dizzyingly complicated... I mean, he's in the sort of systems novel territory normally of doing something where, you know, he's interested in big ideas kind of clashing with each other. And, you know, the problem with systems novels is that people are very often sort of shoved off to one side and the human side of the novel gets scanted. And I think he's trying to bring the human up to the front in this one you know it's exposing of him rather than otherwise you know sort of big ideas and cleverness and complex systems are what he's what he's perhaps better at but as I say I haven't read this year's shortlist so I can't really pronounce on its quality as a whole. But don't you think the flaw with the novel of big ideas I mean with Richard Powers I'm I'm going on this one and two-thirds of his last novel, The Overstory, which was the point at which I decided that life had had bigger attractions. I think the problem with it, I couldn't ever imagine a Richard Powers character saying, I really don't understand what you're saying and I don't care. You know, And the whole point of big ideas, I think, is that they are impenetrable to some people but those people are not necessarily bad people because they aren't necessarily interested in sitting down for an evening and hearing about co2 levels in the atmosphere you know and a novel of ideas why write a novel of ideas with no convincing human beings in it really i suppose the only reason is to browbeat your readers and that's not a very good thing to want to do. No, I mean, I, I, that sort of novel of ideas thing, I mean, I I like it when it's... Because sometimes, you know, novels don't always have three-dimensional characters in a sort of rounded, realist, naturalist way. You know, if you look at someone like Pynchon or even Don DeLillo, you know, they're doing something different with character. They're flat, they're flat but vivid. Flat but vivid, there you go. That's that's but these aren't, these aren't flat but vivid. No, they're, no. they're not even flat. They're not even two-dimensional. <laughs> they're one-dimensional. They're just a line. <laughs> yeah, but we shouldn't we shouldn't spend the entire the entire podcast beating up on poor old Richard Powers. For <laughs> why why not? Why not? Well, I was going to ask you. You've both been judges <laughs> on the book of judging panels at various points. Sam, what what's the process like? How do you go about choosing a winner? Well, the way we're yeah, every panel. Which, which is the thing that should be stressed when people generalise about the Booker Prize is too like this or the Booker Prize rewards this sort of book or it's too obsessed with that or it's too populist or it's not populist enough is the panel is different every single year and so every panel arranges its own process just as it arranges its own judging criteria. In our year, our chair was Michael Wood you know, a very distinguished critic and he, he said, right, this is how we're going to do it. We get the books in, they're all numbered and we just read our socks off and meet every month or two to do the next batch. So, you know, right, books one to 40. You've got six weeks. See you in six weeks. And then we would have a conversation around a table about these books one by one. 
And the way we arranged it was we essentially said, if anybody around the table thinks there's something there in one of these books, it will get put aside for further consideration. If we all agree there's no hope of it ending up on any of our shortlists, it's out. So essentially it was kind of ongoing winnowing. So you'd have a kind of, you know, you'd come away from that with maybe 10 books out of the first 40. And then you'd do another 40 and you'd come away with maybe 10 books. So then when you got to the shortlist meeting, having read all the books, you'd have maybe 40 books to talk about rather than 150. And then you'd win it down to shortlist and you'd all go and reread the shortlist. And then you'd sit down on the morning of the prize and produce a winner, which in our case wasn't very hard, but sometimes produces, as we know, some distinct messy drama. How about you, Philip? Well, the process was very much the the same. Of just, uh, I, I judged it in uh, in two thousand and one, uh, and the chair of the jury was Kenneth Clark, Kenneth Baker. Sorry, what am I saying? Kenneth Baker. Um, and um, I, I do think it's um, it'd be interesting to see if they ever again appoint a Tory cabinet minister to chair the Booker panel. It doesn't seem altogether in tune with their um, thinking, let us say. He was excellent. He was really open to absolutely anything at all. He loved uh, he loved coming across something really kind of new. He loved being persuaded that a book that he hadn't much liked was um, was worth considering. I think we did pretty well, actually, with the, the shortlist. I think a very good test that the uh, the Booker shortlists ought to be subjected to after a certain amount of time was what would ought to be um, what of the authors from ten years ago what have they gone on to achieve have some because you know a novelist who is genuinely talented will almost always go on to do something else they won't just stop there and we picked up. Um, Ali Smith for her first novel, David Mitchell for his second novel, uh, Andrew Miller, who's gone on to do some very good things. And the two that were sort of at the top at the end were Ian McEwan for Atonement and The True History of the Kelly Gang by Peter Carey, which won in the end. And we we could have gone either way with the McEwan or the um, the, the Kelly gang, and it was uh, it was three two. And I think I think it doesn't really matter. It didn't harm, you know, Atonement's future with readers. So you know, I, I think that if you applied that test to most shortlists from in the nineteen nineties, then you would get very much the same sort of um, response. The, you know, the 1994 panel that shortlisted Abdul Razak Gurna, you know, nobody uh, shortlisted Abdul Razak Gurna again, although we did longlist him in 2001. That's been his last brush with the booker, and uh, now he's won the Nobel Prize. I think that's kind of probably going to show up in shortlists from the 90s. If you'd applied that test from shortlists from the last 10 years... I don't think that that would be the case, although, you know, some of them have obviously got some time to prove themselves. Sam, one of the points that Philip makes is that a lot of these books lack humour. I mean, has the booker less tended to kind of favour books that are very serious or are there some funny books that have won? Well, again, as I say, the trouble trouble with generalising is that the judging panel is different every year. I think there is a sort of, you know, kind of atmosphere 
I think, that governs sort of serious literary discussion, which often seems, and I moan about this a lot, to be down on humour. The idea that the so-called comic novel is somehow a separate thing from the serious novel and that, you know, humour is not an important literary effect. I mean, I think, I remember and I quote it ad nauseam, David Mitchell said to me when I interviewed him for Cloud Atlas that he thinks the difference between a great novel and a merely very, very good one is that a great novel will always be funny in some way, will contain some humour. Because I think, you know, actually humour is that ability to look at things from two angles at once is completely central to how humour works. And it's also completely central to how good fiction works. So, yeah, I think if you get a self-serious panel that thinks, you know, funny, not equal literary, that will come out in a shortlist. And, you know, I, I'm you know, strongly in favour of the idea that, that, that being funny is an important part of being a literary success. Quite often in discussion as well, I don't know whether you've found this, Sam, if you're proposing a, a really funny book, if somebody is determined to sit there and just say, well, I don't think it's funny at all, you know, then that's the end of it. You know, if you say, on the other hand, well, I just don't think this novel about um, uh, genocide in Wales or whatever is uh, is is moving at all, then you've condemned yourself in a way that saying I just don't think it's funny. I think that's a very good point, actually, and it, it does raise one of the things that I, I became aware of in the process of judging is that there are certain, as it were, sort of cheap tricks or lines of attack that can see off books. You know, it, it, it's not, like you can't always see them in the round. So, for instance, if there's a book you don't like, it's much, much easier to see it off by selective quotation. You know, every big novel will have three or four clunkingly bad sentences in it. And if you can find them, it becomes very hard in a room to argue against. You say, well, how about this? And how about this? And how about this? And, you know, actually, of course, good novels are always made of good sentences. But... A novel that might have, you know, its virtues might be aggregative, its effects might be, you know, more than simply at sentence level. You know, the killer quotation of the crap bit can see it off very easily. And in the same way as Philip says, it's much easier to say this isn't funny because it's subjective and ungainsayable and doesn't seem to have any moral connotation than to say this isn't important or this this seems a pompous treatment or a one-dimensional treatment of a very important subject and therefore is no good because, you know, the, the subject and its treatment, as Philip says, are easily muddled. And, you, you know, you want, hopefully, a panel of critics who are good enough to make that analytic distinction and say, yes, of course, you know, we can agree that genocide is a very bad thing, but literary craft involves more than simply saying so. And yet, you know, in the whole history of uh, of prizes, the novel that only consists of really superb sentences for decades has lost out to the the novel uh, from uh, saying something about, you know, some important issue of the day. You know, I th- always think the really telling point about how pointless literary prizes are is that Nabokov never won 
a literary prize. And if you look at the the books that won the Pulitzer, the years that Lolita and Pale Fire came out, it makes the heart sick. The the book that um, was preferred over Pale Fire was something by somebody called Edwin, I can't even remember his name, about a, a vicar in Pennsylvania struggling with his conscience. You know, I mean, you'd, you you would have to be in on that discussion, and I think the the very interesting case now uh, this year is a novelist like Colson Whitehead. Now, for my money, Colson Whitehead's sentences are better than almost anybody now writing. I think they're just magnificently polished sentences, and yet they're sort there's something kind of playful about his novels that just hasn't really appealed to the book of juries well is it the thing that he also which is another of the the sort of self you know literature you know sort of self-consciously literary tends to look down on being funny and also that people i think this is breaking down or changing but for a long time there was the idea was there was a literary novel and then there was genre novels and the fact that writers of extraordinary accomplishment and literary ambition like colson whitehead will work in and with genre so, you know, he's he's written sort of SF, his new novel is, is a kind of, you know, noir thriller that, you know, people go, oh, well, that's a, that's a thriller, that's a crime novel, that's an SF novel, that's a, you know, and of course people like, I mean, in America particularly, sort of Michael Shaban and Jonathan Lethem and Margaret Atwood will use genre as in the past, you know, as Le Guin did over here, sort of Naomi Alderman, Nick Harkway, you know, there are lots of people doing really interesting things with what used to be consigned to the science fiction bin or the crime bin. And maybe Whitehead falls into that category for people. Or supremely John le Carre. Or le Carre, exactly. Who always refused to be considered by prize juries. I think uh, quite rightly. I think that was a very sensible thing for him to do. Philip and Sam, thanks for joining. And that's everything this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up the latest issue of the magazine to read everything discussed? If you become a subscriber today, you can get 12 weeks of the magazine for £12 delivered to your door along with a £20 Amazon gift card. I'm Laura Prendergast. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week.